first want to speak to my community, the trans community, both in Montana and across the country. If you are trans, particularly if you are targeted by legislation like this, I have one request for you. Please stay alive. I know how harmful and painful these bills can be to listen to, how much hurt this debate causes us. I feel it every day in this building as I walk through, whether it's indifference or cruelty towards our community. We will be there for one another through this. And ultimately, we will win this fight in the end. We will win it in our communities. The polling shows that policies like this are unpopular across the country. And every day when we are out, we shift the needle on policies like this. We will win in the courts. Already for bills like this across the country that have passed legislatures, Courts are finding that they violate the equal protection and due process rights of trans people seeking life-saving medication and care. The federal Supreme Court has ruled in Bostock and our own state Supreme Court in Maloney versus Yellowstone County. And ultimately, we will win in the legislatures. We may not today, but we will in the end, I promise you. A much-needed pep talk from someone I like and greatly respect. Montana Representative Zoe Zephyr sending out the marching orders. Let's stay together, stay alive, and let's thrive as we head into Trans Day of Visibility. Hello again, everybody. It's good to be back. I'm Carly Chardonnay-Webb, and this is the return of the Transporter Room. The convergence of sports, transness, sci-fi, gaming, all things nerd and geek, and a lot of other stuff. And yes, we took about a month off. We still haven't found a sponsor yet, but we're working on it. We're hoping to get some people that will come in, sponsor us, help us out a little bit in the weeks ahead. But in the meantime, we're going to keep this ship boldly going where no podcast has gone before. With. Trans Day of Visibility coming up March 31st. I want to have a show that was filled with trans joy and achievement and accomplishment. And we have a lot of guests that'll point us in that direction. But before we bring them in, a look at the news and notes of the week and the last few weeks. And just two days ago, Nashville, Tennessee, the site, a horrible scene, yet another school shooting. Three children, three adults killed at the Covenant School in Nashville. Now, there's been a lot of conjecture about the alleged shooter. The shooter's been identified as one Audrey Hale, 28 years old, former student at the school. Police spokespeople had said that this person, the alleged assailant, was a transgender man. Officials said, quote, she feels, she feels that she, their words, misgendering as usual, identifies as trans, but we're still in the initial investigation of all that and if it actually played a role in this incident. For certain media outlets and certain people on the right side, meaning their political position of the political debate, have already made a decision. 
you heard and read headlines like this. Transgender killer targets Christian school. Never mind that one obvious characteristic of the alleged assailant got lost in all that. It was a characteristic that matches, oh, about 98% of people who are behind the trigger of a gun in a mass shooting. I'll give you three guesses on what that characteristic is. The first two don't count. In the continuing legislative tsunami that we're seeing across this country right now, well, first up, obviously, to where else? Flora, duh. Now they're talking about a bathroom bill. It's called HB 1521. And they had a hearing on that on Tuesday. And there was quite a dogfight between Republican Representative Rachel Plakin. She represents an area in and around Orlando. And Democratic Representative Angela Nixon, she represents an area near Jacksonville. And these two locked horns over this bill, Plakin wrote it, mind you. And basically, this bill would say that if you don't if you don't look the part, we could send the police, have you kicked out, or have you arrested. Now, what this bill, as Representative Nixon showed, doesn't have is a clear mechanism to enforce it. Let's take a listen. Transgender would be outside of the scope of this bill. This bill is for all Floridians. It's about the safety and keeping... Um, decorum and um, safety for all Floridians. It's not about one particular group. Thank you. So what, what restroom would a transgender woman be obligated to, to go to, go into? Representative Plakin, you're recognized. So a transgender woman, thank you, Chair, um, would be able to use the men's restroom or the unisex or family accommodations. Representative Nixon, and then we're going to Circle to others who have questions, and we'll come back to you. You're recognized. And so if there is not a unisex restroom or anything like that, and that person does not feel comfortable going into a, man, a men's restroom, they, you're telling me they won't be able to go into a, a women's restroom? If it is obviously a male in a women's restroom or changing facility, then that person could ask the male to leave. If the male refuses to leave, then that person could call the police. Now, not to be outdone, there were at least a few trans men who spoke out against this bill. Here's what one of those had to say. My name is Caleb Hobson Garcia. I'm a student at Florida State University, and I'm about to graduate with my Bachelor of Science. I should be in class right now, wrapping up my senior semester and preparing to celebrate graduation, but instead I'm here. And I have just one question for you. To the sponsor of this bill, do you want me in the women's restroom with you? Because if this bill passes, you'll be requiring trans men, like me, to use the women's restroom or face criminal punishment. This is rooted in trans misogyny, which is a hatred of trans women. It's rooted in your hatred of non-passing trans people, because being faced with trans people makes you uncomfortable. You haven't even stopped to consider the trans people who look like me, who have passing privilege, which means I'm perceived as cisgender most of the time. You haven't even considered what me following the law would look like. It looks like me in the stall next to the females with my low voice and my facial hair. 
It looks like me with characteristics that terrify people when they're seen on trans women. It looks like me bringing discomfort and potentially traumatic experiences to women. If I follow the law when this bathroom ban passes, it also puts my safety at risk. What happens when husbands see me following their wives into restrooms? This law would open the door to aggressive behavior inside and outside of bathrooms as strangers demand other people prove their gender, making all people less safe. That includes cis people who don't conform to stereotypical appearances. Let's be honest, this bill is not about protecting people. We already have laws in place that make it illegal to harm or harass people or invade their privacy. These laws in place are used to prevent assault, keep people safe, and hold offenders accountable. You're not trying to protect people. This bathroom ban is just another piece of the nationally coordinated effort funded by far-right Christian billionaires like Betsy DeVos to erase trans people from society because we don't fit into a narrow, religiously motivated worldview. If you pass this bill today, know that you're forcing me to use the bathroom with your daughters, wives, mothers, and sisters. Your Thank time, you. Your time. I hope those who are supporting this bill are listening. Elsewhere, World Athletics, as expected, called for a ban on transgender women in international track and field and a tightening of what I call the Castor Semenya rule, which refers to cisgender women who have what the governing body calls differences in sexual development. Now, this was not unexpected. Lord Sebastian Coe, the head of World Athletics, has since FINA's decision to ban transgender women from international swimming last summer, World Athletics said they were going in this direction, and they did. Here's what Lord Coe had to say about that. Where the science is insufficient to justify maintaining testosterone suppression for transgender athletes, the council agreed it must be guided by our overarching principle, which is to protect the female category. <clears throat> we cannot, in all conscience, leave our transgender regulations as they were at five nanomoles per liter for at least one year when we were unsure about the impact of doing so across all our disciplines. So we need to know more and we need to know more now. The council has agreed to exclude male to female transgender athletes who have been through male puberty from female world ranking competitions from March the 31st uh, this year. We want to give the DSD athletes who are already competing in our sport, i.e. in the unrestricted events, all those outside of 400 to one mile, the opportunity to resume competition. But our scientific advice is that six months is the minimum period necessary to ensure their naturally high testosterone levels are no longer giving them an advantage over biological women. These interim provisions are only for athletes who are currently competing in non-restricted events, throwing, jumping, running, uh, below 400 meters or beyond the mile. The interim provisions do not apply to the previously restricted events. The six month duration chosen for the interim provision is a compromise to provide and allow the relevant athletes who previously competed in unrestricted events an opportunity to compete in compliance with our DSD regulations that were approved today. The six-month period is in line with the required suppression for the current DSD regulations and, according to the available science, 
It is enough to bring hemoglobin levels, a key determinant of performance, from natural male levels to normal female levels. It is unlikely to be sufficient to reduce enough performance advantage in the power strength based disciplines. Therefore, we believe that the interim provisions are likely to level the playing field in running events beyond the mile, where 55% of our identified relevant athletes compete. It is likely to still be insufficient to reduce the unfair advantage the relevant athlete experiences in sprinting events, where 45% of the identified relevant athletes are currently competing. DSD athletes who have been competing in the unrestricted events can apply to benefit from a reduced six-month period to maintain testosterone levels <clears throat> under 2.5 nanomoles per litre, provided they apply and suppress their testosterone level to 2.5 nan nanomoles per litre before 1 July of this year, 2023. So none of these athletes will be eligible to compete in the World Athletics Championships in Budapest in August. They will be eligible to compete in other events after that six month period, including the Paris Olympic Games next year. Now, I wrote a response to it in Monday that's on, that's on outsports.com right now. We're gonna put the link underneath the Twitter post for this show. But in a nutshell, it's the same things I've said all along. A blanket ban is transphobic and unnecessary. And the caster Semenya rule has long been archaic and races to a level unseen since the days of Avery Brundage. What we're really seeing in action here is two things. Number one, in terms of the DSD issue, the caster Semenya rule, once again, it's governing bodies based in the global north being discriminatory to athletes in the global south. Every athlete that has fallen afoul of the DSD regulations, as ill-defined as they are, have either been from South Asia or Sub-Saharan Africa. Names such as Semenya and Namibian sprinting star Christine Mabuma have been caught afoul of this rule. But also there's another side to this. And it's something that Lord Coe, I find it surprising coming from him, but at the same time, given that also the man is a Tory in Britain and a former Tory MP doesn't totally surprise me. Transgender women are not women, and cisgender women stink at sports. So say we all. When I think of this issue, one thing I think about often are the sage words of Dr. Veronica Ivey, the two-time UCI Masters cy track cycling champion and ethics expert says this often. So the way human rights work is that the default is inclusion and the burden of proof is on the people seeking to exclude. Memo to Lord Coe. If there's an advantage, prove it. The science and the scoreboard do not back up the hysteria. Also, you've probably seen some of the footage that's come out of Australia and New Zealand recently because of a visit by a certain Kelly Jean Keane or Posey Parker or whatever name that that well-known British transphobe is using this week. Now, Posey Parker has been making the rounds. She did a tour in the United States that was largely ignored. So she decided to take her show down under, take it to Oceania. Well, she got to Australia and she got heckled, booed, and was hanging around a lot of Nazis. 
And she got to New Zealand and got even worse treatment. So for that in mind, I wanted to send a message to Ms. Keene or Ms. Parker and to the UK's Home Secretary, Suella Braverman. And I figure I want to give this message in a way where you'll get it. So I give you my own personal British information film, Protest and Deny. The number one problem with British transphobia is noise. And a lot of that noise comes from Posey Parker or Kelly Jean King. Posey Parker has a lot of noise and an irritating voice that never stops talking and never stops spewing transphobia. That's why we in the rest of the world would like it if Home Secretary Suella Braverman would just take her passports away and keep her at home. Because you see, when Posey Parker leaves her home, she puts herself in situations like embarrassing herself at an American college swim meet to where she has no rooting interest to harass a college kid from America. Or she heads to Australia and is courted by Nazis. And her rallies are Nazi rallies. If you don't disavow the Nazis who show up to your rallies, then, my dear Ms. Parker or Ms. Keene, you are at a Nazi rally. Or you could find yourself in New Zealand, where some ticked-off New Zealander throws tomato soup in your face. That's why, Home Secretary Braverman, it's better that Posey Parker stays in the UK, stays at home. Ms. Keene or Ms. Parker, your home is the best place to be a transphobe. Please stay there. I don't think Posey Parker would take a liking to our next guest either. I know for a fact that when the rugby football union hears this name, and here's the name of our guest, they cringe as well. Last summer, both the rugby football union and rugby league in England, within minutes of each other, decided to ban transgender women from competition. In the case of the RFU, that affected exactly seven players across the UK. One of those players decided she wasn't going to take the decision lying down. He was going to stand up. A rugby player from Brighton named Julie Ann Curtis stood up and said, I'm fighting this all the way, and slapped the RFU with a lawsuit. Her reason behind it was simple. I play rugby. I love the sport. I want the right to play. It was as simple as that. And her reasons for wanting to be on that field were far-reaching, not just for the sport, but for her own well-being. And I'm pleased on this Transvisibility Week to have her right here in our forum, beaming up from Brighton, England. Welcome, Julianne Curtis. It's an honor to have you here. Welcome to the Transporter Room. Energize. 
Hey, how you doing? It's so nice to be with you today. It's great to be with you, and it's great to meet you this week. Heard a lot about you. I've been following the story. First off, there was that embarrassment last week for Posey Parker, Kelly Jean King, whatever name she's going by. Now that she's back home, the rest of the world would love it if she just stayed in the UK, but I'm pretty sure that you'd want her thrown out the country. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm kind of like, uh, we'd be happy if she left and never came back. But um, I think one of the hallmarks of her trip overseas, it, it shows in stark contrast the extent to which, um, like, the Australian and the New Zealand media dealt with the hatred that she was talking about. You know, here she gets a free pass. And, you know, everybody tiptoes round and calls her a feminist and all the rest of it. Whereas, you know, in Australia and New Zealand, and thank you guys, um, you know, they were like, this is a transphobic person that's come to our side of the world and we're not having it. As far as your own case, what's the status right now? You You decided to fight the RFU's decision from last summer. What's the status? Where are we at? Yeah, so I think the, um, you know, where we at with that is, so there's a lot of research that is relied upon by the various sports governing bodies to ban trans women from competing in sport. Now, for the most part, um, and, and this isn't a technical, scientific, or even legal de definition of it, so I'm just telling you the way I see it as myself, as an individual, I've read this stuff. A lot of the research is predominantly focused on comparing trans women to non-athletic cisgendered women, and there's there's very few scientific studies which actually pitch trans women against athletically trained cisgendered women and and specifically in rugby where there is um you know one of the beauties of the sport of rugby is that there is a position for everyone on the field so whether you are like myself which is a, a large person you know down to you know a five foot two scrum half um there's a place for everyone on the field. And there has always been, and it's always been acknowledged, this differential between um, the very big people and the very small people. And undeniably, in the specific sport of rugby, um, you cannot get away from the fact that this disparity, this disparity exists. So on any rugby field at any moment in time, there is a disparity between the biggest and the smallest on that field. And um, without the access, now now we offered, the, the, you, you mentioned there were seven of us who were registered with the Rugby Football Union. There were actually only three of us playing. So we had made an appeal to the RFU to say to them, I tell you what, you know, there's only three of us. Get us into your sports science center and 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 put us through the paces. And so in effect, so if I understand this right, you you offered to 
to, okay, study us. Yeah. Yeah, very clearly. Um, it was in the papers. You know, we said, look, this is what we're saying. You know, bring us in, assess us against the the atypical cisgender female rugby player. The 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 women I was playing with, they were like, um, I, I sort of had this moment of like, because they were like, but you're not a threat to us, and I'm like. Yeah, I'm not a threat. Well, no, hang on a minute. I'm a rugby player. Of course, I, I want to be <laughs> perceived as a threat. But the point is, relative to what they were saying, is no one at any time had ever felt that I was the problem. And interestingly enough, once I launched my case, I had a number of um, both, uh, well, mostly from teams I'd competed against reaching out to me and saying we didn't know you were trans you know um because on a rugby field you've got big people you've got small people and um you know it's just the way the game works so um i think that's a big part of it and you know i i have chosen to fight this fight with the rfu less less so about me because i'm 52 and i'm probably this was always you know this year was always going to be my my sort of final season if you like and we talk so much about how sports draw people out of antisocial environments out of drugs out of um and gag. in your case for example a lot of ways out of depression oh yeah for me it was i mean i just i i think a big part of it was was the lockdown i mean the lockdown definitely isolated me um and i i just couldn't connect with people and and we need that as human beings we need to connect with each other and you know, getting out there, getting onto rugby field and being accepted. I think that was the cornerstone of my mental health recovery. You came back into this game in effect to heal. What was it like the first time you stepped on a pitch past the lockdowns, past the issues with your mental health and just get back out there? What was that like for you? You know, getting out there, getting onto rugby field and being accepted. I think that was the cornerstone of my mental health recovery was being accepted and being allowed into this environment where which was a very privileged female space. Um, and being told, you're welcome. We love to have you here. Thank you for joining us. I mean, that was just so incredible as a trans woman to be invited into that space and be accepted. Um, it meant so much to me. Um, and I, I talked about this on ESPN where I said how um, the, you know, after the, the, the RFU passed this decision, I suddenly wasn't sure which bathroom to use at a rugby club. 
And I'd never questioned that before. Um, and yeah, I mean, my mental health really, <laughs> it's still bouncing along the bottom. And I, um, you know, this fight is the thing that keeps me going at the moment. But it's not great. It's not great. We, we're, we are under threat. And I, I was reading something the other day about the how what what I find so fascinating is that the Stonewall movement started with a trans woman of color, um, and it then was taken up by the gay men side of things. Um, but everybody forgets that it was a trans woman of color that actually started everything and now trans women and specifically trans women of color are being discriminated against from within our very own community and that to me is not something i can accept and will never accept on the pitch when was the first time when you realized that my teammates just see another woman out there wearing the same kit? What was that moment like for you? Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> being on a rugby field um, surrounded by actually, yeah, I'll, the thing which I found which was so cool was they didn't assume that because I was trans, I was somehow better than anyone else on that field. They just saw me as another player. And all they needed from me was all that has ever, all that has ever been asked of me is, okay, you're a tight head prop. This is your role. This is what you do. Just do that. There was never an expectation that I would ever do anything other than fulfilling the role of a number three on a rugby field uh, in women's rugby. And I think that's where that inclusion comes from, is I was never separated. I was never, oh, give it to Julie, give it to Julie, she'll run through everyone. Because A, I couldn't, and B, that's not the function of what I was required to do. So all they ever asked of me was to just play the position that I was in to my best. That's all they needed from me. Now, if I understand it, playing for both Hove and for Seaford these last couple of years, no complaints. No. Clubs didn't complain. Other, other clubs didn't complain. People in your league didn't complain. In your mind, where did this came? Where did this come from? I think that was like one of the. I, I mean, certainly the first thing I said to the RFU when they finally reached out to talk to me, which was two days before they made the decision. Um, I said to them, "Why now? You know, what is the burning platform? What is, you know, what is the crisis? I mean, we've had a case in the UK recently where." Um, a player broke another player's back and that person sued the other person and 
and one. And that was two cisgendered people, you know, one injuring the other. Now, I understand if the consequences of a case like that calls into question the framework of, of how you're managing a sport. Now, in the case of trans women, nothing had ever happened. There had never been a complaint. There had never been a problem. But they sought to ban everybody on the basis of whatever it was. There's something I want to know about in, in, in concert with what you're talking about. Because if there's one thing both of our countries share, it is this, it's this hysteria. Yeah. Over, over, uh, specifically over a trans woman winning. From the athlete perspective, and both of us being athletes, from your end, what are your thoughts on that level of discomfort that cisgender people have just about a trans woman going out and playing and maybe even winning? Yeah, I, I think, you know, in, in terms of that, it's like um, you raised, the, you raised a, a very interesting point around the, the fact that, you know, there are lots of cisgendered women who don't make the grade and wouldn't under any circumstance. And blaming a trans woman for the reason why they didn't make the cut um, is, is a moot point. But But also... To what extent have cisgendered women not made the cut? Um, <clears throat> you know, everybody talks about the, you know, the trans threat, but you know, in, under IOC rules, we've been playing, we've been in athletics for ten years, and we still haven't taken a podium yet. Um, so I think, from a competitive point of view, and this kind of goes to to what that. Um, interview that you had or, or that thing you posted around that basketball player is like actually um most successful cisgendered women take it as an insult that they are positioned as less than capable than a cis that than a trans female athlete and uh, um you know, it's like, um, I, I, I think a big part of it's, you know, people make a lot of noise about Leah Thomas. And um, again, I, you know, I'm not a swimmer and I don't totally understand the, the swimming thing. But to my understanding, she hasn't wiped the board with everybody. You know, she's a competitor. And she's competitive. Um, she's certainly not the tallest trans. She's not the tallest swimmer in the women's category. Not even close. At six one, not even close. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it's not like we're taking over. I think any cisgendered woman that believes she can't compete against a trans woman inherently believes they can't achieve the heights of their own success because the reality is the very best trans the very best cisgendered women 
let's say the top 10 in any category are more than capable easily of defeating a trans woman. And a big part of that comes down to the fact that people forget that when you go through the process of transitioning and a lot of the a lot of the um the way they frame the argument is that i'm a man one day i chuck on a dress and then i'm a woman it, we know that's not the case we know it's we laughable know that prior to all of the bans you had to have been transitioning for a period of time before you could compete in the in the female category so that that um dog whistle that says you know you're gonna get um and and sasha makes the argument she says you know joe marla's gonna put a dress on and 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 say he's playing for the women now it, it's nonsense it's not the way it works and people forget people well they don't forget they don't know that to transition puts your body through an incredible amount of stress and it's not just about diminishing your testosterone you've got a situation where someone like myself who hasn't significantly lost a lot of body weight but because a lot of the muscle has transferred into um, <laughs> non-functional material let's put it that way um but the point is like and and someone actually said it to me the other day and i thought yeah that's it exactly it's like you've taken a motorcycle engine and put it in a land rover and that's all i ever did exit question The place where you live is known as Turf Island. But this question isn't for the Jilly Vendells. It's not for the Posey Parkers. This is for that person who probably reads the Toriograph or the Guardian, depending on where they're at. They're in the middle. And all they see is what they see either on the B4, ITV, GB News, wherever. But they really don't understand it if they could have an audience with you what would you tell them about trans people that they may not know or understand i don't know that i would tell them anything i would ask them what is it about trans people that you don't understand because i think you know we can write articles and post blogs and vlogs and all the rest of it I think the, the greatest power comes from dispelling preconceived notions of what something is. So if I were on a on a platform and asked, you know, that question, I mean I would say, well, what is it you want to know? What what don't what do you want to understand about trans women? Um I think the biggest part and you know i'll come back to this point around growing up in zimbabwe was when i was 10 years old 
1980, for the first time, my dormitory at the boarding school that I was in, suddenly we had people of color in our boarding, in, in our dormitories, and we'd never had that before. And it didn't take long for these 10-year-old kids, myself and, and everyone else, to realize these are just other people. They're not a threat. They're not, it, it bursts a bubble. And I think the biggest problem with isolating trans people from society means that you reduce or remove the opportunity for reasonable people to interact with trans people and realize they're just like everybody else. They just want to get on and live their lives. And that was one of the things that I took away from growing up in Zimbabwe and going through a racial transformation was that, um, you know, ultimately, we're all just people and we just, we all have the same needs and wants. And, um, you know, that's what I would say to anyone who asks me, you know, about being trans. I'm just a person. I didn't ask to be this. Um, you know, it's like there's that meme about the um, little uh, chicken cracking out of its egg surrounded by alligators or crocodiles. And, you know, I couldn't have given myself the worst possible place to be born. <laughs> I was born into 1950s America, but in Africa. And, um, you know, I was told that, you know, I had all the privilege in the world. I was white. I was male. I was supreme. And then when I was 10 years old, I had to reevaluate all of that. And it was a big lesson to learn. And I learned it. And um, I would just say to anyone, you know, the lesson I learned was you cannot learn about other people by ignoring them. And it was very, you know, it didn't even take a school year before the majority of us were like, oh my God, we're just all the same kind of people. We just want the same things, you know, skin color is irrelevant. And this is kind of where I want to get with, with the whole trans thing is it's they're trying to tell people that we're dangerous, that we're all of those things that I was told as a child people of color were. And I'm like, how are we still having this debate? I mean, it's it's just nonsense. It's it's a regurgitation of the same nonsense over and over again. Um and you know, the fact, you know, there will always be, it's like you've got an America now, um, you know, this idea that there is this white supremacy. And you kind of like, you look at it and you're like, why are we still having this conversation? How, how is this still a conversation? You know, if we're back to that conversation, where does it leave trans people? Because, yeah, if you're going to roll us back by, 80 years which is scary when you think about it um 
do we have to go through all this again? You know, what have we learned? Come on, people. It's like so regressive. It's it's nonsense. Nonsense, just like the RFU's decision. But I know you're going to be fighting it. We're going to be supporting you every step of the way. Julianne Curtis, thank you for being on the transporter room this week, especially on TDOV. And I'll tell you right now, we're going to want you back. We're going to want you back often. In fact, I want you and Sasha here. Ah, oh, yeah. Well, Sasha, so so Sasha and I, we, um, we're going up to uh, International Gay Rugby IGR Festival at the end of April. Um, so we'll be doing some stuff. And Sasha has been my most staunch ally and, and, and an ally for the trans community generally. And she's a fantastic example of a cisgendered woman who says, don't you fucking dare tell me that I am not capable. <laughs> I love her for that. Yeah, well, like I said, we're gonna we know you got a case to fight. You've got a, you've got some more work to do. So we're gonna beam you back down to the UK. Thanks for being in the transporter room this week. And love it. Got a lot more to come, but first, this. Trans woman to trans woman, do you ever get tired? I'm always tired. I'm always fucking tired. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not kidding. Trans woman to trans woman, I'm I'm a quarter hour past tired. Yeah. Of all of, of this. I'm tired of the stuff of the guff you get. Yeah, I mean, at this point, I think uh, the, the only thing I can say in response to that is anger is more useful than despair. The theme of this return to the transporter room, in many ways, has been telling some untold stories. Well, this next guest has been quite a story, and they're only 26 years old. This guest is one of the 34 out trans people who have played a varsity collegiate sport at any level, be it NCAA, NAIA, community college, and so on. But this person's story, I'm going to tell you, it's going, they're going to blow your mind. Set the way back machine to 2019, Bowden College, a powerhouse in the sport of squash. And in the middle of it all was a youngster named Lex Horowitz. Now, Lex Horowitz, excellent squash player, at one point was on the women's team, but they have been doing a lot of soul searching and realized this is not where my true north is. It's time for me to be me. And before their senior season, 2018-2019, they said, no, I'm not here, I'm here. I need to be on the men's team. And with it became their sport's first trans athlete at the college level. From that experience has grown, in a sense, an expansion. They're now working in consulting with firms, consulting with businesses, consulting with schools on how you make inclusion a reality. And a lot of what they're doing now came from that experience then. And it's an experience we are pleased to have them on to talk about on this forum. Coming in from Philadelphia, Lex Horowitz, we're beaming you up. Welcome to the Transporter Room, Energize. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Right out of the gate, 
what made you make, what led you to the decision that you made? Now, you're going into your senior year about you've been on you've been a part of the squash program from the time you were a freshman and now you're coming into senior year you've come into your truth and you say now I do I want to live in that truth I want to compete in it what led you to that decision it was such a challenging decision to make because as a non-binary and genderqueer person in binary athletic spaces neither of the options really felt like I was going to be able to be at home in my sport anymore. And I also had a leadership position on the women's team. My entire life being an athlete and seeing myself at the collegiate level and being able to be the captain, have this leadership position, be able to build this chosen family within athletics to then say, well, if, I, if I'm no longer on the women's team, I no longer have this this leadership capacity that I've been building for my whole life, what would it look like for me to to let go of that vision or that image of myself in that space to pursue what true affirmation and joy and euphoria in athletics can look like for me as a genderqueer non-binary person. And so my decision was rooted in the fact that I deserved to be affirmed and I needed to be. And the woman's athletic space was not providing me with that or supporting me in those capacities, whereas the the men's space, even as a non-binary person, was able to affirm me and my masculinity, which is what I needed for myself to be able to thrive in the athletic space. Now, when you explain that, where do you think sports is missing it in regards to this next step in inclusion? In some sports, you're starting to see things like, I'm an avid runner. You're starting to see non-binary divisions at road races now. But as far as applications throughout sports, where do you where do you think people are falling short? What do people still need to know at the administrative level to make it a more affirming um, experience? Absolutely. The thing that I always try to remind folks and bring into spaces when I'm working within athletic spaces, whether it's in higher ed or organizations, is that there's always something that we can and need to be doing to support our binary and non-binary trans athletes. Because even with our binary spaces, non-binary athletes can be happy and be affirmed in women's teams and in men's teams and has everything to do with the language we're using to talk about our teams or just to talk about our sports and also the resources that we have available. So I'm a firm believer that within our binary system, there are ways that we can continue to support binary and non-binary trans folks, and that starts with language. So give a disclaimer and just acknowledge the fact that binary teams are not comprehensively representing all of the people that exist beautifully within athletics. So if you're on a women's team, say, hey, this is a women's team. Not everyone here is a woman. We hold space for the fact that folks may be non-binary, gender expansive, and you are welcome here. Our language falls short, but we this is a space for you. Same disclaimer and acknowledgement when it comes to men's teams, and then also being upfront with saying, hey, here are your options. If you are non-binary, if you are a binary trans person, we want you to know that you have options. You're not stuck on this team because of what you've been told your whole life about what sex 
sexy than presumed or designated at birth and what gender you've been assigned. Like, no, like how can you be affirmed? Here are your options and making everything actually accessible so that people see, I have all of these paths available to me. I can be affirmed. This is how I can pursue these spaces and exist as my true self. For you that senior year, what was it like the first time you hit that court? At oh knowing God. that you are in that space at that moment and you were truly you. What was that like for you? What was that moment? What was just competing like? Even just in thinking back on it, I have full body goosebumps and chills just to, to be able to it was being able to breathe for the first time without having to think about the fear of people not seeing me. And of course, there are always going to be folks that will make assumptions about my identity and place me in the wrong boxes, which is why so much of the work that I do helps people to confront the assumptions that we're making internally and not to act on them in our actions. And so being able to step on court the first time being introduced as a member of the men's team, nothing in the world could have taken that smile off my face. I was practically floating <laughs> onto the court to be able to stand with my teammates, be acknowledged and a welcomed member of the men's team, to be able to compete against other masculine individuals within the sport. and just be able to challenge myself and simply exist in an athletic space because that's all it is. It's about being able to exist without all of the thoughts and anxieties and fears on the back burner that so many of us trans folks have in our brains about, oh, well, all these things are simultaneously happening and they're taking away from the fact that I just want to compete. In a sense, how did the team evolve with you? Was it one of those things where at first people were like, hey, okay, Lex, you're with us, you're on the team. And was it one of those things where people just didn't think about it or was it just this grad or perhaps was it say gradual evolution where people are asking, we're starting to probe a little bit and get a little curious and maybe be willing to step into the conversation about, okay, okay. Who are you? Who are wits? We kind of want to know. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was so beautiful because it wasn't a big deal. It was simply, I was their teammate. I was a member of the family and it was unquestioned. And I think that that was so important that I wasn't made to feel an, like an outsider that happened to be coming into this space. When I sat down with the men's team to share that beginning of my senior year that I was going to be a member of their team, we were all in a round circle with our coaches and everyone just said great pat me on the back and said welcome to the team and so that really released this this fear of oh well will i even be able to belong in this space and i had my and i knew that i could exist on the men's team because the the senior captains were such kind thoughtful and caring individuals and the team environment that they cultivated from when they were junior captains to senior captains was a space of inclusion and safety and welcoming for all people. They had encouraged and brought all of their teammates 
to faith-based trainings. They were had a lot of mindfulness activities. They were so cognizant and attentive and put so much intent into creating a space prior to me even switching teams that I knew that I was able to belong here and that I wasn't going to be an outsider. Um, and just the team check-ins, my the folks on the team are saying like, hey, how are you feeling here? Or are you, do you feel safe navigating this travel space when we are going to these tournaments? And having that attention and care being directed towards my happiness and, and my well-being were all such important factors to being trans in a sport. Let's say Charlie Baker calls you because the NCAA <laughs> is looking at a lot and have instituted new policy. Their first new policy mm-hmm. since 2011 began this year. Let's say he calls you and says, this, needs some fine tu- in, this may need some fine-tuning. You or a Division three student-athlete, what are some of the things you would tell the Charlie Bakers and tell athletic directors in regard to how they can do better? What can oh, be absolutely. done that's better? In the immediate, right now, what can be done is language. The language that we are actively using right now for all the policies is extremely binary. So it inherently erases the presence of non-binary and genderqueer folks by using language such as trans male and trans female. So on top of using that binary language, saying trans male, trans female, instead of saying gender terms of woman and man. And so much of what I would like to do in this exact moment and in the project that I worked on with the NESCAC was, hey, we have this policy in this exact moment. We can understand the exact eligibility criteria, but using inclusive, affirming, and less gendered language. So how do we... What's an example of that? Yes. So in the policy... uh, And also the way that it is written in breaking down uh, hormones and some... So the when we're talking about gender-affirming hormones, using that exact language. So some trans folks, as a part of our gender affirmation journey, are interested in taking gender-affirming hormones. But right now in the policy, the policy does not necessarily inherently validate the fact that not all trans people want to take gender-affirming hormones. So what language can we be using in order to support trans non-binary folks who just I don't want to take gender affirming hormones as part of their journey and still are valid as their affirmed gender and need to know what options they have to be able to exist authentically as themselves in sports. So also like HRT as, as the up to very recently, the standard for talking about gender affirming hormones, but replacing HRT or hormone, um, hormone replacement therapy or treatment, those terms with gender affirming hormones itself, because that's what they are. They're gender-affirming hormones. So that, in a sense, being more affirming language there. And then also, rather than saying trans-female, saying trans-feminine folks or trans-woman and non-binary people. And so the ways that we're breaking down the information is how do we expand it to be inherently inclusive of the fact that there are non-binary people here who are being impacted by these same eligibility criteria, but in the writing of our criteria, we don't see that. And also just the way that we're breaking down the information itself, there are many paths that are available to trans folks. And how can we make that very clear that you do not have to 
take gender-affirming hormones and here are your options. Or if you do want to take gender-affirming hormones as a part of your journey, here are your options. And so making sure that we're not conflating sex, right? Our sex is this combination of bodily characteristics that include chromosomes, hormones, internal, external, reproductive organs, and secondary sex characteristics, right? So female, male, intersex, not binary. How do we not use sex when we're talking about gender? Our internal sense of self that only we know and have the authority or the empowerment to share with folks if we want to. World rugby blanket ban, swimming with a blanket ban, other world governing bodies making things even more draconian, and now most recently world athletics with, with another blanket ban. With what you just talked about, what are some of the biggest misconceptions that you're finding when you're especially working in sports spaces in regard to policy? What baggage are people walking into the room with to begin with that you have to unpack? Absolutely. The biggest piece is that even potentially with some of the most, quote, well-intentioned people, is that when we're thinking of fairness in sport, when we're thinking of fairness in, quote, women's sports, even identifying women as cis only. And so that is the biggest piece there. If we're talking about fairness in sports, and we're talking about women's sports, that inherently includes trans women, cis women, intersex women. And if we are not coming from that understanding, then your fairness does not exist because you have to understand trans women and intersex women as women. And therefore, how we can support all women in existing authentically and safely in athletic spaces must be rooted in our even identifying gender and sometimes very, very uh, ingrained ideas that just trans women aren't women. And so how we must start there because that is not true. <laughs> and so we have to start from that belief and understanding that all of our bodies are different. Let's just acknowledge this diversity, understand where we're coming from and create access that is truly fair and that is truly equitable so that women's sport includes all women and does not prioritize the existence of one category of women versus another. Now, you're, you're 26. Yeah. <laughs> Based on the actuarial tables, you're going to live, you most likely are going to live long enough, knock on wood, to where you see sports drastically change. It's a change, in my personal opinion, it's a change that sports long term will need to make. It will need to make it because you have a young generation which has a completely different understanding of sex and gender. And some of them are going to want to play a sport. What mm -hmm. other possibilities could be coming on the forefront? What do you, what needs to happen in sport to make those possibilities really come forth to where we're, we're not just thinking about, we could be implementing it. Yeah, absolutely. Honestly, the, there are so many possibilities and there will continue to be new ways of imagining and dreaming what this can look like. And I by no means have all of the answers because I am actively, actively dreaming and brainstorming about what this all can look like. And the truth is that every individual, whether you are cis or trans or queer or straight in athletic spaces, the ways that we need support are going to be unique to us. 
And so there isn't necessarily this one size fits all solution to this. But what we can do is pay attention to how our current spaces are negatively impacting or positively impacting athletes and then use that real time information and experience to inform, well, how can we then expand these spaces? What does it look like to be able to have more safety and welcoming aspects of sport? So for me, I always come back to language, which is that right now if we are designating, we have women's and men's teams. How can we then expand to women and gender expansive folks in this category or women and men in men's spaces, men's and gender expansive folks? Or even having that original disclaimer of women's team as designation, we're not hitting the mark here. We have people who are men on this team who may be trans and we have people who are non-binary on this team. And the language we're using is simply imperfect. Um, I would love for us to be in a place where the language that we have to use in order to be able to organize doesn't inherently harm those involved in sport. So I always come back to the language we're using. Every individual is an active stakeholder in creating the environments that we're in. The silences are just as powerful as the words we're using. But when we're using words, we have to make sure we are using the affirming, inclusive, and expansive words because we all are here and we're all showing up and we all deserve to take up this space. With that in mind, two-part exit question. One professional, one personal. First, on the professional side of things. How much does the level of cisgender comfort affects, affect what you're talking about? Mm. And by cisgender comfort, referring to engagement in the conversation, the and, way engagement in the, the conversation, but also engagement in the competition. I, I have a viewpoint, and my viewpoint is many people are uncomfortable with the possibility of a trans person winning. And I'll say this, whether they're men or women, because I had, I had Nez Murby, Canadian Paralympian, proud, out proud trans man pushing towards Paris next year, and he said this. Mind you, if I was winning, I'm sure that I would bear the brunt of anti-trans legislation immediately. How much does that discomfort or, com or lack of comfort play into this? It is such a heavy influence, which ties back to the fact that this entire quote debate, which is not a debate, it is about what it does it mean to be equitable in sports for everyone. But it is so deeply rooted in internalized transphobia. There is truly no way around that. And then on top of that, not only internalized transphobia, but trans misogynoir, right? So we're seeing how this is primarily impacting trans women of color or black trans, not, or black queer women such as Castro Semena, right? So how is race playing into misogyny that's playing into gender that's very much so impacted by sexism. And so when I go into this spaces and I'm talking with cis folks and I'm hearing these comments that are, like I said, even from the quote, most well-intentioned folks are really rooted in this unaddressed, uh, unaddressed 
transphobia, this unaddressed sexism and misogyny and racism. And so being able to pull apart each of the intersections of these isms and acknowledge the history behind how we've been engaging this conversation or who they think they are, quote, protecting, but really harming, uh, is, is so rooted in the, quote, threat to sports. There is absolutely no threat. There never was, there never will be. The threat is actually in these unaddressed internal beliefs about who deserves to have access to sports, and you have to break it down in that foundation. Because um, even when we're talking about the the competition and who makes it even to the elite level, or when we're talking about middle, high school, college levels, we already said, like, we're trans people are not dominating in sports. We exist as athletes, and we're doing the best we can. We love to compete. But even looking at the fact that cis people are, bit, are beat by cis people all the time and have no problem with that. You'll be upset because, of course, you want to win. But if you are a cis person and you've been consistently been beat by another cis person and now you have an issue with the fact that a trans person is beating you let's acknowledge the fact that this is not a new experience but you're going to root on to someone's identity as an excuse for the fact that you just may not be as good as that person and that is the truth and you weren't as good as that cis person either so let's look at why you are attacking trans people in sport and not simply accepting the fact that that person is better than you in this moment. Maybe you continue to train and grow, and then maybe next time you win, and then you don't have a problem. So why don't you have a problem now? I know a swimmer in Kentucky needs to hear that. That was what my (laughs) (laughs) my little feel was just on. (laughs) Uh, Ms. Gaines, uh, I'll I'll send that to you via Twitter, just so you know. But from a personal standpoint, because I hear this on Twitter. Well, you know, if you're going to transition, you don't get everything you want. If you want to be this, you got to give something up. I I categorically reject that out of, as a trans woman who plays sports, I reject that out of hand. But looking at you, why why was it important that you not only affirmed yourself, but that you that you stood on the line for Bowden College your senior year on that squash court? Why did it matter? because I deserve to exist in athletic spaces that could see me and not being visible and not being able to be seen as the queer non-binary trans person that I was in an athletic space was not allowing me to be an athlete because of not being a foot. And so for me, being on the men's team my senior year was a way to to save my mental health, to be able to have that chosen family who saw me for being me, to be able to be aligned more closely with the gender identity that I am, even though I'm still not binary. And so being able to have access to affirming athletic spaces is absolutely life-saving and life-changing for so many people, whether you are cis or trans, being able to exist in those spaces. And so that, that is the, the driving method that I deserve to exist in this space. I, I deserve to be seen, and this is my space to take up. I can tell you, I'm glad you took that space up because it's inspiring many others to take theirs, me included. 
Lex Horowitz, thank you for being on the Transporter Room, especially on this week of visibility. Keep being seen. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Okay, I'm going to beam you back down because I know you got a lot of work to do. And we're going to be back. But first, this. The National Collegiate Athletic Association first instituted its policy for transgender student-athletes to participate in 2011. There have been four who have won individual conference titles. Three have earned All-American honors. Two have won individual national championships. But the first to do so was a young black trans woman named Cece Telfer. In her senior year as a track and field athlete at Division II Franklin Pierce University in New Hampshire, Telfer qualified for the NCAA Division II Indoor Championships in the 60-meter hurdles. Her sixth place finish made her the first transgender student athlete to earn All-American honors. But that was only the beginning. In the outdoor season, she competed in the grueling 400-meter hurdles, and she went on a season-long tear that led to a balmy night in Texas and the Division II Outdoor Finals in that event. From the starter's gun, Telfer took off like a rocket and launched into history. With a dominant wire-to-wire victory, she became the first transgender student-athlete to win an individual NCAA National Championship. CeCe Telfer's special senior year was a huge leap forward at the intersections of black history and trans history. And welcome back to the Transporter Room. It is good to be back, and I am the podcasting, fat ears wearing, bicycle riding, football flying, daughter of a gun, and you're going to have a hard time keeping my ASICs down. Whoa! It is again good to be back, and our guest for this week is somebody who, well, lives the promo I just gave you. See, Will's it, no- it known? Yours truly, Carly Chardonnay Webb, is a wrestling fan. I've been a wrestling fan since growing up in the Midwest. AWA country, if you know your wrestling. The Ganyas, the Bachwinkles, uh, Mad Dog Vashon. I saw Mean Gene Okerlund before he got big. That's how far back I've been a wrestling fan. And recently, I ran across something on Apple TV that, in many ways, got my fandom back. Uh, they're running a short series called The Monster Factory, which is set in the well-known, the well-known pro wrestling school, The Monster Factory, outside of Philadelphia. And this is a big deal i mean this is i mean some some of the tops in the sport in the current epoch of the sport and even before have come out of this specialized finishing school for those who are in the squared circle and if you haven't watched this on apple tv you should it this gets my full endorsement and i know someone who is um, a budding wrestler and wrestling referee and also a trans woman who is a student at the Monster Factory right now and was a part of the fir- of this first season of this special documentary series. And also, she's a good friend. Charlotte McEachern has been a wrestling fan as long as I've known her. But even more so, she took the plunge to not only be a fan 
but to live a dream. She's dreamed about being a professional wrestler. She dreamed about being a ref as well. And the Monster Factory and the tutelage there has given her the opportunity. And she's here in this forum talk a little bit of what it's like to learn, to give and teach lessons in the squared circle. Beaming up from Reading, Pennsylvania, Charlotte McEachern, dear friend, welcome to the Transporter Room, Energize. Hello, thank you for having me on, Charlotte. Chardonnay. Charlie. <laughs> Crap. <laughs> Sorry. Well, I'll come, you've known me long enough. Chardonnay's fine. And, and first, how are you doing? How's how things been going? Uh, got a little bit dinged up. You've had a few matches. What's it been like? It's everything is good right now. Um, my life is pretty much work, wrestling, work, wrestling. Um, unfortunately, training is taking a bit of a side sidebar right now. I uh, unfortunately hurt my shoulder about a month ago. I'm still on the mend from that. Dirt. Now, how did you get yourself all dinged up? Uh, practicing a um, crucifix pin. My opponent landed right on top of me. Was not fun. Oh, now, the obvious thing, why are you doing this? Nice, nice red-headed kid like you. What is making you want to get out there? I've been a wrestling fan my entire life. I've always wanted to do it. Um, and what made me take the plunge was just a point in my life where I was really down on myself and I needed something. And it just ended up being pro wrestling. Now, I understanding at, at the Monster Factory, you're not only a competitor. We're going to get more in on that because and I know your competitors. Got, I know as a wrestler, you got a backstory, but also you're an official. You wear the stripes. You do some matches out there. Yep, I am one of the referees for the Monster Factory right now. Um, I've also been refereeing for other smaller independents in the New Jersey and Pennsylvania area. Um, mainly New Jersey, now that I think about it. But Best match you've done. Best match that you officiated. I think a personal favorite best is, you see, is the one we see in the show. It's um, Mimi's final match before she leaves for the WWE. She was the one who put me through my first training match at the Monster Factory. So I, I wanted that honor of to be the one to see her out the door, essentially. Watching the documentary series, watching the Monster Factory, the first thing that I noticed is how grueling it was. It was go, I mean, this was like, this was CrossFit on crack in a lot of ways. It was go, go, go. It was always new. <laughs> You're always doing something. What was that first day like? Yep. Uh, I think one of the first days when I first, when I was officially a student, I officially started training. Uh, Missy Sampson, the other coach there, uh, everyone owes me 100 squats. And that was, I got through it. But like, I think like the week and a half afterwards, uh, my legs were shot the rest of the time. That, that, the next week and a half, my first after my first class there. When was the first time that you realized that, hey, I could really do this? When, when was that moment? I think it was just more and more when it became just, just sticking with it and realizing that you're able to push yourself harder and harder. 
when it's like I'm it's eleven o'clock at night, I'm dead tired. I still have that hour ride home before I can go to bed and get up for work the next day, but I never regret going in in, in the first place. Now what made you a fan at the beginning? Uh well first show I ever saw was um it was a WCW pay-per-view. Um, I went to visit my, when I was a kid, we went, this was 1998. We went to my grandfather's house to visit him. And at the time he had, um, the scrambler boxes you tied to a normal cable box. So you can get all the pay channels for free. Oh, <laughs> this is what pirating cable, was cable industry. Don't cancel me. <laughs> don't <laughs> Hey, I had one of those too. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> Bad Carly. <laughs> uh but yeah, I I sat down in front of it and watched that and I was took sense, just like the bigger characters, the action in the ring, like mod like they were modern day superheroes just doing things that you don't think should be possible. Now, who is your fav who is your favorite back then? Back then, as a kid, I was a big fan of like the NWO Wolfpack. So, like Kevin Nash was one of my faves. Um, me and my dad both loved Goldberg. As he Goldberg. ran through people. Oh, you're Kevin Nash, Goldberg. Okay, that's that's digging deep. Tell me about this character you've created. Okay, what is your ring? What's your ring? Give it to me. What's your <laughs> ring persona like? Okay, I practiced this. Give me a minute. I am the that frantic furry femboy who knows every trick and trap of the trade. That trans femme trickster who runs circles around all the bad boys. The Omega that knows how to make any good any good alpha sit and beg like a good boy. I am that ever swift, the ever clever, the ever oh so adorable. No matter which way you swing. I am the ever foxy Ruby O'Connor. So I'm just wondering, what does the fox say? <laughs> yes, I know. That song is 10 years old this year. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. I'm going to hear that in the crowd. To the point where I have to acknowledge it. <laughs> so... Tell me about now verse hero or heel. Um, for now I am mainly a babyface. Um, I'm still kind of working out what a heel Ruby would look like. Actually, because when because when you gave that intro just now, I thought you were a heel. Okay, I felt I felt some heel energy right there, making the alphas big. I felt some. Uh, I was like, oh. Oh really? <laughs> oh really? Okay, now, I'll I'll have to keep that in mind. Now that's another thing, though. The furry femboy with all the trans femme tricks. Now, this is that's another thing. What's your thoughts on how now in this time? And I know one person, our our resident wrestling expert, the Wonder Boy themselves, Brian Bell. Would also attest to this because Brian Bell for Outsports. In case you don't know, Brian Bell for Outsports. 
if you want to know LGBTQ wrestling, they are they are the re they are the source. Yep. Hashtag just saying. Yeah. What I mean, talk about just how when I was coming up, the only thing that was remotely that was remotely gay, queer, whatever was maybe adorable Adrian Adonis, and that was just a fake for a character arc. But now you're seeing you're seeing LGBT you're seeing wrestling just really this explosion of inclusion. And in some ways, your character's a part of that. What's it like to first to see this in wrestling now and also be a part of it? Well, that that is like kind of, the part of it that's kind of a relief to me. I'm not the first. There's plenty of not just queer wrestlers, but trans wrestlers on the scene right now. Um, you know, Edith Surreal, Kid Bandit, um, Nyla Rose, uh, Venny. Those are probably the big ones right now, but like, I, because like wrestling back in the day, like you were saying, there, there's really not queer representation in wrestling unless it's a straight up heel character or it's something like Gold Dust back in the day. Um, but like, it's basically big dudes with big muscles. And, like, the manliest men you've ever seen. And, like, today, no. Anyone can do this. If you if you have the drive, anyone can do this. Now, one thing. You are... You're not only part of the Monster Factor. You're um, in this show. Yeah, I'm in the background. Don't blink you. You'll miss me. But I'm there. Keep an eye well, out for the, dirty, for the dorky-looking trans girl with red hair. Well, like I saw you at least in like ten or twelve scenes throughout the whole thing. You did have an interview that was used. Yes, did have one, mm -hmm. and there was a point in the showcase. And, and warning, spoiler alert, spoiler alert! But all the episodes are down now. You can binge this whole thing. I did, and it's a good binge. Uh, it was during the showcase, the three, two, one rumble to start. Bunch of people in the ring going at it. And you're just sitting there patiently as like, and for this one, you're not officiating this particular match. You're in your stripes. You're in the referee uniform. All of a sudden, the camera cuts to you hauling butt, but in the background. And then you pop back out and you are in, no, you're, you're ready to jump in it. You're jumping around, big smile on your face. You're ready to be, get in it. What was that like? That was amazing. Like having your first match is always nerve wracking, but like to have your very first match be in the famous twenty three hundred arena, that is that's something I'm always gonna cherish and it's always gonna be a dear memory of mine. Now that's one thing. You're a trans woman, you're getting out there and doing this. Did does it ever hit you in general that wow? I'm doing well. I'm doing. I am. Do I am authentically me, and I'm doing this. I am. In, I am in. I'm in this. I'm in this thing that I love. I'm in this sport that I love. For you it's, to it's be, a, it's a big it. one. Yeah, sorry, uh, it's a big one. Like it's because one thing of the show is you realize. Oh, you realize 
not just how many eyes on the monster factory, but who is on the monster, who has eyes on the monster factory in general. And it's like, Oh, like this is, this is a big deal. And it kind of hits you right then and there that like how big of, big of a deal, like all this is. From a personal standpoint, what is the, what was the biggest deal for you? First walking through that door, but now also stepping into that ring. Not just Danny and Missy, but everybody, all the other students had my back and want to see you succeed. Going going back quickly into the into the docuseries itself. Uh if one thing I for myself got invested in a lot of these people. I mean, obviously, Mimi, Mimi and Gabby lo- love them. Bobby Buffett. Mm-hmm. I see, I see, I see superstars' potential right there. Goldie, Sean, Wet, Brett. They, yes, they are the kind of like you know the douchey dude bros. But they, mm-hmm. but I could see myself rooting for them. And also Twitch, who became. Well, I'll, I'll tell you right now, I will buy Twitch merch. Twitch, I will buy. I will buy. You start coming out with shirts, I'm getting one. What's it like just being and interacting with these people? Who, for those who are watching the documentary, you're going to see stars in the making, but you've seen it just from the people angle. One of the good things about the Monster Factory in general, not just you know them, is that it is a very welcoming. It's been a very very welcoming place for me, and it has been. And a lot of them are a big part of that. Like, I remember that my first day coming in, just seeing the place out, Mimi was one of the first people who introduced herself to me. Um, The Golden Era in general, um, they are, they're they're essentially the leaders of the pack, essentially, and they take time for everyone who needs improvement on anything. Um, Everyone loves Bobby. He is the nicest guy in the world. Uh, the thing with Bobby is he's one of those big guys who shouldn't move the way he does. Like, if you remember, like, a good comparison would probably be guys like Bam Bam Bigelow or Keith Lee today. Like, these big 300-plus guys who almost are able to move like cruiserweights. What's your dream match? Dream match. Yeah, what's your dream match? I think I want to wrestle Kid Bandit or or Edith. Why those two? Kid Bandit is somebody who came onto the scene very quickly, and it's like I've become a massive fan of theirs. And it's like, it's like I, I you don't, you don't see a lot of people who embrace the more cartoony aspect of professional wrestling, uh, and. She is somebody who who does that, especially with like anime and like her current gimmick, which where she's a, a cyberpunk android. Like I, I want to mix up with like those kind of characters. Where are you going to be next? Where are you going to be in the near future? And how can people find you? Right now, my focus is just on Monster Factory Pro Wrestling, which you can catch. Um, we're doing shows once a month. You can watch the entire backlog. On um, Monster Factory Pro Wrestling on YouTube, um, you you can find all our shows there. Um, 
I'm on, I'm at Foxy Ruby O'Connor on Twitter. Um, that's, that's about it pretty much. Uh, other than that, just keep an eye out on Monster Factory Pro Wrestling. Oh, and you can also yeah. come see us live in Paulsboro, New Jersey. Um, our next show um, is April. I don't think we have a date for it yet, though. By the way, Charlotte, two things for the exit question. Number one, um, if if I walked into the Monster Factory and and Cade said you got to build a character for this web person, what would it be? He's put you in charge of building a of building me up as a character. What would it be? I kind of like the idea of you as a revolutionary. Oh. Um, I don't know if we, certain stories we can't tell here, but, <laughs> but like more like how we uh, first have we first met each other. Well, I could see somehow I could see that either that or somebody like I always like one of my favorite wrestlers was the All American Ron Simmons. I could see like I could see like mag magical cross between magical like what if a what if Sailor Moon was born in Nebraska and played football something like that could work okay with something like that, that could work and the exit question what is what is something as someone who's a part of this series and also a part of the monster factory what are the things that you hope people get out of watching this docu-series One of the things I hope people get out of is that if you love professional wrestling, but you're like too small, not muscular at all, that, or maybe you're the, just not the type of person who can, who can be a pro wrestler, that it's not true. Anybody can be a professional wrestler. You just have to try. And that it's, it's important to just keep pushing for your dreams. And to not give up. Well, my friend, I'm glad to see that you're pushing for yours. And we got to bring, I'll tell you right now, the transporter room, we're bringing the Starship to the Monster Factory. At some point in 2023, we're coming down. Because I, I need to see this for myself. Anytime. Come on by. Charlotte McEachern, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for being on the transporter room. Thank you for having me. Hey, we're going to beam you back down so you heal up and get back in that squared circle. Not only is Friday, March 31st, Trans Day of Visibility, for a couple of football teams in the United Kingdom, it will be a very special match of the day. And no, I'm not Gary Lineker. Last year on Trans Day of Visibility, the official football team of the Transporter Room, Truck United FC, played an historic match where a Truck United team composed entirely of transgender women took on Dulwich Hamlet Women's FC in the English 5th Division, the Women's Football Pyramid. It was history. The first time in the FA, first time in UEFA, and probably the first time in FIFA history that such a match took place. Well, leave it to Lucy Clark and Truck United to do it again this year and top themselves. This time, the lads take center stage. For the first time in European football, 
a team composed entirely of transgender men will, will take on the pitch to represent Truck United FC against a team composed of male supporters of Dulwich Hamlet. Needless to say, I'm looking forward to seeing that match. That match will be streamed on Friday. I'm going to get a pizza, get a, you know, get, you know, head down, get some beer, get some pizza, watch the match. And the captain of this historic side is joining us tonight on Transporter Room Meets Match of the Day. From London, the captain of Truck United FC, the lads, Arthur Weber, welcome to the Transporter Room. Energize. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be here. Well, Arthur, first off, um, when did Lucy Clark approach you about playing in this match? But not only that, getting the C, getting the captain's armband as well. Uh, it was last summer. Um, we would, had just played a match against Stonewall FC, and we'd won that. And we were just sitting in the bar afterwards, and Lucy said, Arthur, I've had this idea. What do you think? And I was like, yes. I, I, we should absolutely have a team of all trans men. Let's do it again. And she asked me whether I'd be interested in leading that side. And I said, yes, of course I would, because that would be such an amazing event. I'd love to be a part of it. Now, one thing, got a little star power on the team. Who's on the side? I hear there's even a little glitterati on this team. God, there's so many people. Uh, my friend Harry, who's an author of a book that's coming out in a couple of months, is on the team. Uh, this guy called Ash, who's in Emmerdale, is on the team. There's just so many really cool people. Parker, who's a, currently a semi-pro footballer, is on the team. It's just a really nice mix of people from all across the country, loads of different backgrounds all coming together um, because we love football and we get to make history together, which is going to be absolutely wonderful. Now, one thing. Give me the trans give me the trans man's perspective on this sporting hysteria that we're seeing in both our respective countries. First off, what is it about transgender men that cisgender people especially don't get? What are they misunderstanding about being a trans man today? But they seem to be under the impression that we're sort of like misguided girls potentially lesbians who can't accept that and want to be straight men instead and that's just not true at all i mean i'm engaged to a man so i'd be a pretty terrible lesbian like <laughs> it's just you know it, it's just not true at all we are men of all different sexualities all different backgrounds who just happen to have been assigned female at birth and that's that's something that people just don't seem to understand no how has the game factored into your own journey? I mean, through your transition, through your life, how has this game impacted you? How has it impacted the process for you? Um, so football has always been a huge part of my life. Uh, my mom actually likes to jokingly blame me being trans on my dad, making me watch the 1998 World Cup as a baby. Uh, she thinks that trans me. Uh, <laughs> so I used well, to play... Well, at least they're saying it's like not anything that was like nefarious. It was just football. Yeah, exactly. So um, when I was like, I'd always known that there was something up. And I used to play for a boys football team, even when I was very young, because my dad knew the coach and the coach didn't have a problem with the fact that I didn't look like all of the other boys. Um, but then I got to secondary school and everything became single sex. And they wouldn't let me um, play for a boys side. So I had to play for the women's side. And it was when I was around 13 that I found out what transgender was and that transitioning was possible. 
And so I was like, oh, okay, well, I guess I can't play for the women's side anymore because that's not me. Uh, but they wouldn't let me play for the boys' side either. So I just had to kind of give it up. Um, and then I was miserable because football had been such a huge part of my life. I've been an Arsenal supporter since I was six years old. And it's been just such a huge part of me that, you know, even when I started medically transitioning, unfortunately, where I'm from, Peterborough, which you probably haven't heard of because it's just, it's, it's nowhere on the map. People only know where it is because of the train station. Um, so where I'm from, there are like no LGBT sports provision anywhere. Um, there wasn't a pride event in my city until a few years ago. It was very much nothing. So I only started playing football again a year ago when I moved to London because there are loads of LGBT teams here where I felt welcomed. And I've noticed that my mental health improved so much because it's felt like my transition is going really well medically and I get to be part of this again as well. And my team that I normally play for outside of truck is called Left Footers and it's mostly cisgender men. And so being able to keep up with them and feel like a part of the team has also been really gender affirming too because when I first went along to my first game I was really worried they were all going to be like six foot tall I'm only like five foot seven and they were going to be so much faster than me all of these kind of inter- tra- transphobic arguments that are used against trans men being able to compete I'd internalized them and so I was really really worried and then I showed up and one guy scored three own goals and I was like actually I'm going to be fine I'm okay <laughs> <laughs> now what is the strongest part of your game um, I think my ball control, to be honest, that's um, something that my manager commented on the last game I played at is just being able to, when I don't panic and just immediately kick it away like I used to, like being able to just hold it while I make a decision and then pass it on to somebody else. Not shoot, I'm an absolutely dreadful shot and no one put me up front. But <laughs> Now, what was, the, what was the toughest adjustment you had to make in returning to the game? after all the things you've been through and going and like you're all you're well into your transition now i mean you're arthur you are who you are what was the hardest part of getting back in that pitch again i think the hardest part was uh knowing that there likely wasn't going to be anyone else like me there because although the league that i play in is gender inclusive most people are cis gay men so at the likelihood of there being, you know, a bunch of other trans people at this team that I was going to join was very, very small. And at the time that I joined, I was the only openly trans player. So um, that came with a lot of sort of, I don't know, anxiety, not knowing how educated the other people would be on trans issues. Luckily, most of my team have been absolutely wonderful. And the EOA kit for my team that we've got is the trans colours because they want to show support for trans people even before. I came along so um i think it was just there was just that concern that oh god i'm going to arrive and no one's ever going to have met a trans person before and i'm going to have to answer a million questions it just didn't happen so that that was much better than i was anticipating in fact i'm looking at the hard article in huck right now <laughs> it's got you in the kit nice kit i might add good trip <laughs> Good trans colors there. Good on you. You just that team just has another fan now, and I just haven't and, scored a single goal all season. So we need all the support we can get. Yeah, but in the picture, you've got the Ronaldo goal scoring pose. You've got the pose. Now you just got to find the back of the net, and of course, you have that smile. Yeah, is, is was that what it was like for you hitting the pitch the first time? The, the first time I was 
more nervous. It took a few games for me to get into it um, just because, you know, going there, not knowing anybody as well. I think if it had been different, if I'd like, you know, made a community on Twitter and then gone to play with people because then at least, you know, you're friendly and then nobody's going to be horrible to you if you miss the ball. Um, but there was also that. It was, you know, it, knowing that it was likely going to be no other trans people and the not not knowing anybody and being like, oh God, what if nobody likes me and all of that kind of stuff. Um, so it was initially very, very scary, but now very comfortable. A lot of the guys are coming along to support the TI UK game on Friday as well. They sent out an all email right. to the whole team to say, please so, come along. For our now, what's the team you're playing for when you're not playing for Truck United? Uh, they're called Left Footers. Left Footers, I want to give you a shout out. You just made a fan. If you're selling that kit, I'm buying one. <laughs> I like, no, I love that. Though that support's important, especially given. This was in the Huck article. Mm -hmm. On top of the concerns about my sporting ability, there was anxiety around my gender presentation. What if I wasn't masculine enough to fit in with my teammates? These worries buzzed through my brain as I set foot on a football pitch for the first time in 11 years. It's a long layoff, but also that thought. What, is, what, is, what did that mean to you, to be masculine enough? I don't know. Like for me, when I was playing football and school and stuff, it wasn't gay men or openly gay men that were playing football. It was very sort of toxically masculine, straight boys that I was playing with. And so that's what I was used to. And that's what, even though knowing that I was going to be playing with mostly gay men, I was still anticipating that when I went. And queer football is so different to heterosexual football. What, uh, what's the difference? Talk, no, because. I've heard ever since my life became queer, that's been yeah. one constant refrain yeah. is that queer, queer life is different. Queer attraction is different. Queer fashion is different. Queer, a lot of things are different, but queer football. Okay. How is it different? Walk, walk me through this. I think the banter is just, it's still there, but it's different. Like, um, for example, I played in a match uh, a couple of months ago. And uh, one of my teammates headed the ball off to clear it because um, he was in defense. And one of our supporters shouted, oh, Nathan, you give such good head. And like that's so different <laughs> to what you would hear at a straight football match. And that's what's so wonderful. My, some of my partner's family were there to watch and support me. And they were crying with laughter because they'd not come to a queer football match before either. And so they weren't anticipating it. And it's just it's always stuff like that. And everyone's so, at least on my team, everyone's so supportive. Like it's never... If you, you know, miss, didn't kick a ball far enough, someone intercepted, it's never, you know, that was terrible. Why didn't you do something else? It's like, good job. You tried. That was a brilliant idea. It's just a shame the execution didn't come out right. And so it's so much more of a supportive environment, I found, than heterosexual football used to be, where it, where it was like, if you didn't execute everything absolutely perfectly, then you were shit and you were going to get subbed off. Whereas Every, this is... It, it, like, sure, everybody, on the everybody on the pitch... Is like Marine Ho or Brian Clough. Is that it? Everybody on the pitch they, mm -hmm. is a football boss now. <laughs> now that's yeah. interesting. Gay football banter is, is similar to gay softball banter because that's the same thing. The double entendres are flying. But what? how does it feel to play on a side like this, the one that you will be playing, where or just playing for Truck When you play games at Truck Night in general, it's other, it's other trans. 
it's the whole 11 is trans. And now the whole 11 will not only be trans, they will be trans men. What draws you to want to play on play on this team as well? I think just because it's going to be such a special team. Like I think if I'd been 13 and been able to see that there was a team of all trans men out there, I would have at least tried to stick at it and fought a bit more when my school said no. Whereas when I was 13, I didn't even know that other trans men were out there. I'd seen a couple of people posting on YouTube and that was it. There was nobody on TV. There was nothing. And so if there was something like that when I was a child, I would have fought more. And so I hope that there will be other trans people out there that are probably better at football than me because I'm, I'm not the best, clearly, if we haven't scored any goals all season. But hopefully trans people watching this game that are much better will stick at it and then maybe we'll have, you know, an all-trans England men's team someday. Who knows? But, like, it's not just about... For me, it's about hoping that other people don't make the decisions that I did and give it up and think that your whole world's over. It's not. There absolutely is a place for you and you can keep playing and you can do anything that you want to. But that, I think that's why I want to be part of it is that we can be such an inspirational group of people for the trans kids of today. And trans kids need that. With all the horrible stuff that's out there, trans kids need events like Friday night where it's going to be whole team of trans women, whole team of trans men. There's probably going to be some non-binary people there as well. I'm sure it's going to be a wonderfully beautiful trans event and trans kids need to see this. So that's why I'm really, really passionate about making this happen. So I want to make sure I get the timeline right. At what age did you did you say, I've got to give this game up? And at what yeah. age did you come back to it? Uh, 13 uh, when I gave up and 24 when I started. Well, just before 24. It was like a month before I turned 24. I returned. Uh, 24 is not too, not too old. No, no. There's not, not, not even close. I mean, yeah. I, I'm... I'm playing sport and I'm in my fifties. It's doable, but yes, at the larger picture, um, it's gotta, it's gotta be hard enough for trans adults in the UK. Turn on the TV, there's peers or yeah. there's GB news or there, or there's the even auntie Beeb seems to be trending anti-trans. Mm -hmm. Um, Prime Minister is trans, prime, prime Minister is anti-trans, and seems the leader of the opposition is. Every yeah. news, every newspaper seems to have something that whether it's whether it's the Tory Graph or the Guardian, every it seems like seems like people have it in for trans people, but at the same time, Natalie Washington tells me our good and wonderful friend from Truck United and Football versus Transphobia says it's not as bad as it looks to those of us on the outside. Give me the picture from your side of the hill. What's it like in Britain right now for trans people? I think you're absolutely right in terms of the media and political landscape. Obviously, what you don't see is sort of the community that's off the internet. So there's so many wonderful queer spaces where trans people are accepted and feel part of the community that you just don't get to see because obviously the newspapers aren't going to report on it. Politicians aren't interested in them. So it's very much, it, it's not underground, but it feels underground because it doesn't get the same level of exposure that um, perhaps non-queer spaces doing similar things would. 
and I don't know, that is sad, but I don't know, I'm sort of cautiously optimistic for the tide turning for um, trans people in the UK, um, just because I know there are lots of people doing a lot of hard work on the ground. I do my bit occasionally. I get called in to talk to politicians about it, and I try. Whether they'll listen to me is something else. But I think just because the media is so anti, it doesn't mean that everybody is. Um, so, like, for example, I ran for city council a couple of years ago in the ward that I grew up in. So everybody knew I was trans, and it wasn't a problem at all. Nobody asked any of my door knockers whether I knew what a woman was or any of the other um, anti-trans dog whistles. They just cared about what I was going to do about the bins and the potholes and other stuff. Mm. So I do think that the media is massively inflating how transphobic people are and actually people care more about being able to put food on the table. And so it is less bleak than the media makes it look for trans people, I think. Well, I want to issue a challenge. Because I because this podcast gets a lot of listeners in the U, in the United Kingdom, I want to issue a challenge. Um, Prime Minister Sunak, leader of the opposition, Starmer. I'd like to see you both at Champion Hill Stadium in each Dulwich. Friday night, seven fifteen, the women's match, men's match immediately following. I'd like to see you both there. I'd like to see the whoever whoever represents that constituency in parliament be at that match i'm i'm calling you out to be at that match i'm calling you out to i'm calling you out to get away from the no get away from the noise of the city and the tabs and actually watch this match with that in mind though i want to get your perspective because you love this sport i mean you you saw you saw beckham get thrown out of a world cup as a baby well do you think there will, will we? Do you think that we will see a, a a player who is trans at the top of the at the top of the ladder someday? We, do you think we could see, a, like for example, will you see a trans man on a side in the Premiership in your lifetime? Do you see that? Will that happen? Do you think that will happen in football? In my lifetime. I don't know. I mean, obviously, in the men's game, we're only recently having men's players starting to come out as gay again. So I think in the women's game, it's potentially possible because I know several trans women, obviously, including Natalie, that you've mentioned, who do play in the women's league. So I think the women's there's league... The, there's the washing machine as well. <laughs> the, so the, the you women's have to get about Blair Hamilton. Oh, oh yes, absolutely, Blair. Um, <laughs> Blair too. So I do think, and, and Paula as well. So I, I do think to an extent the Women's League, despite obviously governing bodies and stuff, trying to make changes, I do think the women players themselves are much more inclusive than the men's players will be. So I think to, potentially it could be more possible that a trans woman would get to the top of the women's game before a trans man did in the men's, just because of how the men's game is. Um, but I don't know whether I would see either in my lifetime, to be honest. It's, I'd love to, but <laughs> whether we would, uh, that, that's interesting. Now, exit question. One for the lads, one for yourself. First, about the lads. When you guys go down there on the team bus or however you get there, are you going to make Emmerdale Palmasano 
carry the bags. <laughs> I think Lucy's bringing the bags beforehand, unfortunately, because most of us don't have the kit. <laughs> no, I'm telling you, make Ash Palmasano carry, make make the bonus baby carry the bags. <laughs> I I like Emmerdale. Love you, Ash, but you got but you're the rookie. You got to carry the bags. That's how it works. It doesn't matter if you're a superstar. Doesn't matter if you won a British Soap Award and a BAFTA. You got to carry the bags. Rookies carry the bags. And personal, what will Friday night mean to you? Um, I think it's just going to be really special. And regardless of the result, obviously I'm hoping we win because it's always nice when we win. Um, but even if we lose, just being able to play as an all-trans team in an environment where we're totally accepted by the supporters, by the other men's team, I think is going to be a real... It's not something that I anticipated was possible when I was younger. And so that's going to make it really, really special to be part of that and to be leading that. I've never been captain before, so that will be very interesting as to whether I do a good job on that front. But um, I'm just, I'm really excited. I think it's going to be a good, really good night. Well, I'm excited and I, and I want to see Truck United get two wins this week. Had the man in the armband ready to go Friday night, Arthur Weber. Thank you for coming on the Transporter Room this week, and good luck against Dolwich Hamlet. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, we're going to beam you back down to London. You've got a big match on Friday. Go Truck United. And that's the Transporter Room for this week. We're going to be back next week. We're going to get a sponsor. We're going to keep going on down the road. But before I go, Carly's last call. As we head into Trans Day of Visibility, uh, I want to send some flowers out to people in sports I admire. To C.C. Telford, to Andrea Yearwood, to Terry Miller, to J.C. Cooper, recently had a big win in court, to Pat Manuel, who had a big win in the ring. Congratulations, Pat. Now, um, memo to some people who, hey, you're looking for a fight date? Pat Manuel's available. Call him up. Get your people together and let's make a fight happen. And while we're at it, um, all you people in MMA, uh, Alana McLaughlin's waiting for fight number two. It's about time. It's past time for her to stop waiting and have a fight set up. So come on. Quit ducking Alana McLaughlin, please. And I think of all the young trans kids, even with all the noise that's happening out there, who are still hitting the field. Could it be in softball, baseball, golf? Could be any sport right now. But they're out there because they love the game and just want to play. But of all the trans athletes, and I can think of so many others, I'm thinking of Valentina Petrillo right now, recently won another Italian Para-Athletics Championship. Has been running into some resistance over there. Thinking of you. I, there's two people in particular who are at the front of my mind. Erica Meacham, probably the one of the baddest women semi-pro football quarterbacks ever. Played at an elite level in a number of leagues for a number of years. Never got her just due, but I'll always give Erica her due. And Women's Football Alliance all-star Jacqueline Cook who's on the front line opening the holes for one of the premier teams of the WFA, the Pittsburgh Passion. 
it was those two and talking to them and getting to know them the last couple of years that put an idea in my head. And they both said, hey, if you want it, it's never too late and you're never too old. Pad up and hit the field again. So this spring, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be playing some tackle football as my authentic self. Get back in that field again for a local team. As we get closer to our first game coming up in April, I'll let you know more. And in fact, bring some of my teammates right here on the podcast. In a sense, them seeing me and inspire me and me seeing them. That's what visibility is really about. It's not so much about the rest of the world. In many ways, it's about us. Granted, being out in the world is important. As my mentor Janice Booth said often, you have to be out in the world to let people know that you're in the world. But at the same time, visibility is about us as trans people as well. To let someone who's getting out there and doing it, even through the noise and the struggle, and let them know that, hey, I see you and I see what you're doing. And you're firing me up to do That's what Erica and Jacqueline did for me. So thanks to you two, I'm hitting the ball field this spring. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to play hard and make you both proud. Just a reminder to all of you. Yes, the transporter room is back, which means if there's something you want to see or something you want to say about what I'm doing, leave a message on our Twitter page. Leave a message on our Facebook page. Leave a message at Transporter Room 10 Ford on Instagram because, as always, everything I do here at the Transporter Room, I do for all of you, the people who support us. And that's the Transporter Room for this week. I'm Carly Chardonnay Webb. To my community, courage. To my to our allies among cis folks. Have the courage to open your mouth. And to us all, live long and prosper, steady as she goes. I'll catch you all next week. We're back.